Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 33. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Lord, may we listen to the sermon today, Lord, with all of our heart and mind and strength and spirit being filled with gratitude for Jesus' saving work so that we may live more humbly, imitating Jesus in all that we do and glorifying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we leave this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning from me as well. It's good to be together and open God's Word for us today. It's, uh, it's big. I feel a bit insane trying to do the whole thing at once. Uh, we're we're going to be at a little bit of a, of a high level today trying to capture the heart of this passage. Um, I am doing a Sunday school class over the next uh, sort of five weeks. Next week is a joint Sunday school class with everybody, but then after that is going to be looking at marriage. So, yeah, I know there's a lot of different folks here, uh, people that are married, of course, uh, people that are not, either because they're, you know, in the not yet married category, or maybe you are in a more settled single category, or maybe you're single again, either via divorce uh, or uh, the death of a spouse. Um, 
certainly aware of that, you know, and so as we, we listen, we all bring our own stories, we bring our own experiences, we bring our own sense of marriage and all of that, you know, that we've seen in our parents and experienced and... Um, but it's God's Word, and, and it's good news, and, and we're, we're going to engage it this morning at, at the heart level. But I want to start with Taylor Swift. Uh, she is the, you know, the single most, uh, like she's just hammering it in terms of worldly values and life and all of these different things. I think, you know, some of her concerts, you know, the is... The revenue is bigger than the GDP of small countries. Uh, I know for a fact that uh, she had a concert up in the Seattle area, and the seismologists uh, were like alerted because the the stomping was registering on the uh, Richter scale. Uh, so something is happening there. But I think you know for um, this very talented young woman. It, it, a lot of it began with a love story. A lot of it began with her pouring out her heart, you know, in capturing this vision of the, of the white knight, as it were, who would come and would steal her away, would, would bring her to a place of marital bliss and happiness, and there would just be this beautiful, beautiful picture. Uh, I highlight that because I think that that is woven into creation. Like, like she's actually capturing in that something that's good and beautiful and, and something that God sort of programmed into his world and, and built his world for. And as that, you know, she's, she's singing ab about truth. The irony is is that her own love interests and love life has looked nothing like a love story. Uh, it, it's been one interest after another, and, and most of them have ended disastrously. We know all too well uh, that they usually end up in exile, uh, and they are never, ever, ever, ever getting back together again. Uh, <laughs> We, we recognize that brokenness in terms of her desire for love uh, has marked that. And so we all say a prayer today for Travis Kelsey. Uh, but uh, my point in highlighting this is that when it comes to the idea of a perfect love, when it comes to the idea of the white knight, and being a part of a love story, the Scripture lays it out for us and says, here it is. You are part of a love story. There, there is Prince Charming. There is one who, in the, the words of, of this text, has laid down his life for you. Have you ever thought, you know, if there was somebody who was willing to die for me, I would follow them to the end of the earth? He's come, and he has laid down his life for you, and we are caught up into that love story, not Taylor's version, but our Savior's version. And we are caught up into that love story and invited to give a portrait of that love story to the world. And that's what 
Paul is addressing here as he continues to move throughout the book of Ephesians. We've been looking at this book now for a couple of uh, well, last year we looked at it in the fall, and then we're at here now. And, and Paul's been laying it out from heaven's view uh, how God loved his creation so uh, that he was willing to, uh, different metaphors, he was willing to adopt a people who were unloved. He was willing to lay down his life to redeem a people who were lost. How he was willing to send his Holy Spirit to fill a people. And the call then is that we would walk worthy of the love that he has poured out into us. Last week, Pastor Michael um, you know, highlighted for us that you know, because of what Christ has done, he says, if you've surrendered your heart to Jesus and, and you would name yourself as a Christian, you are light. Walk, therefore, as children of the light. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. Picked up the reading in verse 18 today. Therefore, you know, encourage one another uh, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts submitting to one another out of fear, out of awe. The, the word there is actually phobos. We should get the word phobia. It's translated reverence in the ESV. Uh, fear in some of the older translations. But the idea is awe. You know, out of just your amazement at what Christ has done for you. The love story that you are engaged in. Out of amazement for that. We are to live this life that, that shows it. And, and the vision, the lens that, that Paul gives us for understanding it, it is, is the, the relationship between Christ and the church. So I have three suggestions for you this morning, or at least stopping points along the way. One, I want to look at this lens, and then two, we want to seek to reorient our interests, and then finally, this portrait to behold. So the lens that Paul gives us, and we're basically moving backwards through this text, uh, because we have to understand, you know, when Paul comes to the end of what we read today, so He's, he's going through what's called a household code. Uh, he's talking about marriage. He's talking about uh, parents and children. And then he's talking about slaves and uh, householders. Or he's talking about the employment industry. These household codes were pretty common uh, in, in Greco-Roman thought. They, they would go through and, and lay this all out. But this is also very different. Uh, the way that Paul lays it out, and I'll try to highlight some of those things for you. But the primary difference is the lens in which he's looking through, the worldview, if you, if you will. You know, Paul says the lens that we look through to understand how we are to walk worthy, and this is for everybody, whether you're married or not, uh, we are to walk worthy of Christ. The lens is Christ and his church. 
Like that is the formative, definitive relationship. That is the, the love story that needs to motivate and drive and power everything that we are doing in our homes uh, as parents to children, children to parents, workers, employers, all employees, all of that. That's the lens that we look through. And when we realize that, we realize that it is going to be a sacrificial lens. Because when we understand what Christ did for the church, we are in awe. While we were still sinners, Paul says in, in Romans, Christ died for us. We, we had our fists raised in rebellion. We were very happy in our sin. And Christ took pity on us, and he gave himself to redeem us from our sin. And, and when we really understand that, when we really come to grips with that, it, it, it changes everything about how we view the world, changes everything about how we view our relationships. And so it really is the foremost thing. And, you know, some of, of what you will read here, some of what we'll talk about, it, it's not going to make any sense if you don't have the fear, the amazement, the reverence for what Christ has done on your behalf. And if you have any questions about that, I, there are many others. We, we'd love to help you work through some of those questions so that you, you can you know, really appreciate the love story that we're in. Through that lens, then, we, we begin to approach our relationships. And Paul here is talking about uh, the husband and wife relationship. Note, this is a relationship between wives and husbands. This, these are not comments on all men and all women. Uh, you know, the, the call in, in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands, uh, makes that clear. It's not a call for wives to submit, uh, you know, for women to submit to all men. It's not what's being talked about here. Uh, this is zeroed in on the home. And I want to start with the husbands because the, the, the lens, I think, lends itself to that. Uh, when, when we look at this passage, you notice that, you know, the couple of verses that we have for wives, 22 to 24, in about half the amount of time that Paul spends on the husbands, uh, verses 25 then to 33, uh, and, and the husband's role in the marriage, the husband's part to play, if you think about it in terms of theater, uh, the husband's part to play is to image and to portray the work of Christ. And, and there are two things I want to highlight for you today. There's a lot more that we could talk about, uh, but two things I just want to highlight for you. The first is this, uh, that the husband is called uh, to live a self-sacrificial life on behalf of his wife. Uh, the husband is called to live a self-sacrificial life on behalf of his wife. We see that husbands love your wives. How? In the same way as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, what does that mean? I think the self-sacrificial part 
is pretty obvious. Um, there is a certain sense in which Paul always talks about these things. We, we saw it in Philippians chapter 2. You know, let each of you think not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Uh, we see in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, uh, Paul uh, there is saying, you were called to freedom. Don't use your freedom, though, as an opportunity for your flesh, but through love serve one another. You know, there's always this sacrificial notion to the Christian life, whether you are male, female, married, not married, you know, hope to be married, whatever. I mean, we, there's always this self-sacrificial aspect to it. But very specifically here, Paul says that as a husband, you are to lay down your life so that your wife can thrive. So that your wife, uh, your wife can flourish, so that your wife uh, can find her way through her own brokenness, uh, so that your wife can grow greater in love with Jesus because of what she sees in you. That's a that's a pretty tall order. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I look at this and, and I say, Lord, who of us is sufficient for these things? You know, I, I know for sure that I am not. I mean, I can tell. I, I look at Lisa and, and bless her for being married to me for these 32 years. Uh, and, and I see there are times when she's not thriving. And I know that part of it is I'm not loving her well. I, I am not... I am not laying down my own life. I'm too consumed with my own interests. I'm too consumed with my own feelings and all of these different things. And, and she is not thriving. And the picture that Paul gives us here is that a husband uh, can see whether he is truly laying down his life for his wife by how well she is doing. Now, you are not her savior. And I am not Lisa's Savior. And this is, you know, something that I think is really important for us to, to hear and to understand. I mean, we, we all are married to Christ who, who is our great bridegroom. And He alone is our Savior. He alone can redeem that. But my call as a husband, your call as a husband, if you are married, is to lay down your life in such a way that your wife sees Jesus... And she thrives, and she grows, uh, and, and she celebrates who she is in Christ. Now, part of this, you know, the priority that we put on this is because of what it says in verse 22 is the husband is the head of the wife. There's a couple of things that, you know, just trigger us all over the place in our modern Western world. You know, the idea of cement, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, it's a word that uh, raises alarm bells. And the idea of, of head, that somebody is my head, like what does that mean? I am my own person. There's nobody who is my head. Uh, we, we feel that, that, uh, that tension there. But, but here's what this means, and you know, Paul talks about these things. Uh, he talks about headship in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, and then also in chapter 4, around verse 15, 16. 
And, and there's two ways in which this idea kephale, that's the, the Greek word, uh, you know, is, is used metaphorically to describe what Paul is talking about here. One is certainly in, in the sense of authority. Uh, so, especially in chapter 1, you see Christ is given as head over all things. You know, the idea of rule and principality and power, that, that, is, that is a part of it. There is a, there is a responsibility, there is an authority that is tied up with it. Uh, and then in chapter 4, we see more that head has this idea of source, uh, that the whole body grows out of Christ who is the head. Uh, both of these things are true. If you read commentators, uh, you will find commentators that favor one sort of metaphorical use over the other. Um, I, I'm not sure that we have to choose completely. In fact, I think it's helpful for us to see, you know, both of what, what Paul may be using with this, because we do understand that this notion of headship, out of which Paul is talking about a husband who will lay down his life for his wife, certainly has the idea of responsibility into it. You know, we, we talk about marriage. I haven't really defined this since two weeks ago. Uh, marriage is a lifelong covenantal union between people of two different sexes, male and females of different families, for the purpose of showing forth God's love. Uh, his faithfulness, his creativity. So, so that's, that's our working definition of what biblical marriage is. And this idea of covenant, covenantal union, it, it always has the idea of head in it. So if you think back to creation, for instance, uh, in creation, uh, Adam was created as, as the covenantal head. And one of the ways that we know that is the responsibility that he bears. So for instance, when they, the, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden, you kind of remember how that happened. The serpent was there. He went. He spoke to Eve. Uh, Eve listened to the serpent. She took of the fruit, and she gave to her husband, and they both ate. But when we talk about the sin, whose sin is it? It's Adam's sin. You know, when, when we talk about the need for a redeemer to come, we say we need a second Adam uh, because Adam, as the covenantal head, bore a, a responsibility that was different than Eve. Now, that's not to say Eve was not equally guilty. Uh, I, I'm just saying that the roles and the responsibilities were different. And so when you know, the scriptures talk about the husband then as being the head of, of his wife, saying you, you bear the responsibility in a different way. If Elisa and I were to die in a car accident today and we were both to stand before the Lord, uh, we would both have to give an account for our family. Uh, and, and she would be responsible for how she engaged with me. She would be responsible for how she engaged with our kids. But I believe that you know, God would say to me, Andrew, as the head of your household, you know, how did you love your wife? How did you love your kids? And, and I would have a responsibility that was different in that way than my wife. We're equal, 
There, there's no question about that. Every time the, the, the scriptures talk about men and women, it, it's always in terms of equality. But we're spoken of differently. And, and, and that's part of what this scripture is getting at. So, so head means that we have a responsibility, we have an authority as men that is different from our wives. Uh, and we also then, as part of that, have the responsibility to be the source to go first in terms of, of, of leading our wives. And, and here, I'm not thinking about like setting the course, all of these things, knowing what to do. I, I would be a fool if I did not consult my wife in these things, if we didn't work these things out together. You know both of us. You know that she is way more intelligent than I am uh, and way more gifted. And we, we, we need each other. We, we are a unit. We are one flesh. But I need to lead her in things like repentance. I need to lead her in seeking the Lord. I, I, I need to take the lead in these things in my family because that's what it means to be the kephale, to be the source in these things. So this is a very different view of manhood than was you know, floating around in the first century. I uh, just read you a couple of things. So again, there was all, there were oftentimes uh, these household codes, but it's just very different in terms of, uh, in terms of how, it how it was worked out. Can't get to my thing. Aristotle uh, put it this way. He says, part of the household science that men rule over wife and children. For the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female. Josephus, a Jewish historian, said the woman is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed for the authority that has been given by God to the man. Uh, Demosthenes, who is a uh, Greek philosopher, he said, men keep prostitutes for pleasure. They keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body. But we keep wives for the beginning of children uh, and for faithful guardianship of their home. You see, there was a view of, of the male figure there that was owed stuff. Uh, that That you know, all of life flowed to that, and everybody else had to, to get in line behind that. But what Paul is giving is completely different. It's completely other. He says, you lay down your life uh, for your wife. You, you give yourself in order that she might thrive and in order that she might flourish. That, that's the overall heart of it. And then we begin to understand, you know, we have a context then for what Paul says to wives in, in verse 22. Now, wives, he says, uh, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his, the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. It's really interesting just the fact that Paul talks to wives. That is unusual in these household codes. Uh, usually women didn't even count. Like, they, there would be instructions to men, there would be instructions for children, 
There would be instructions for uh, slaves. But in terms of, you know, instructions to women, it, it didn't even matter. But Paul actually starts there and he says, women, you, you matter. And the role that you play in this one flesh relationship, and notice, you know, toward the end of this passage, I think it's in uh, verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Paul brings us back to the garden and he says, this one flesh relationship that you have, you are essential to its functioning. You, You matter because without male and without female, who fit together physically, who fit together, uh, you know, in emotional and spiritual ways, without the two of you together, you, you cannot adequately portray the picture of Christ and his church. And, and you, you come together in such a way, wives, you, you play a crucial role. You know, the word in in the, uh, in the creation account is a, a help meet, uh, so a, a help suitable. Sometimes that word help can get a little weak. Uh, we kind of say, oh, well, the, the woman, she's the helper. Uh, she's the assistant uh, to the man. That's, that's not what it means at all. Do you, do you know who that term, the, the word in Hebrew is azer? Do you know who that term most often refers to in the Old Testament? It most often refers to God. I don't know if somebody said that or not, but that, uh, that is absolutely correct. It is most often, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of struggle, in times of struggle or trouble. Uh, you know, and, and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we have those types of things. And, and so what we need to understand about this relationship is that men have this role that goes first, lays down their, their, their lives for their wives. Husbands then, or wives then respond to that, submitting themselves to, to their husbands because they are both essential to painting this picture uh, of what it, it works, you know, of what the, the love story is that we are involved with. So Paul addresses women in a way that shows their dignity, in a way that was very different than the culture at that time. And this is one of the reasons, frankly, if you've read like Re- Rebecca McLaughlin and her Women Through the Eyes of Jesus book, that, that women flock to Christianity. You know, we, we have this idea that, that Christianity is repressive to women. You know, this is a kind of a modern Western thought, but that's, that's just not the truth. Uh, and, and it's not the, the way it's worked out throughout history and throughout other cultures, you know, non-traditional cultures. I have a little illustration for you on that as we get, get to the end. But women then are called to submit to their husbands. Now, again, this is flowing out of uh, verse 18 in chapter 21, where everybody is called to submit to one another. Uh, the word submit has, uh, comes out of a military background. Hupotasso is, is the Greek word. It means to put yourself under. That's why sometimes you see it, uh, it translated, be subject to one another. Uh, the, the verb is in the middle voice, which is the reflexive voice in Greek. So it, it says, it, it just says submit. 
probably a better translation would be the older translations that say submit yourself. Uh, you know, it's something that you do willingly. You're not, you're not called to do it just in a sort of abstract way, but you bring yourself to this relationship and you submit yourself willingly to that. Now, the reason why I like the, the submit word, and I, incidentally, I, you know, again, I, I know that we can have all sorts of allergies to that, and I, I will admit that there have been all sorts of misapplications of that. I've been reading a very interesting book by Nancy Piercy. It's called The, the Toxic War on Masculinity. And in that, she cites studies that say that uh, among conservative evangelicals, uh, people who, who believe the Bible and, and seek to operate in that way report having the happiest marriages uh, amongst any people that they interview, um, which again is, is surprising to us. But there's this one caveat. Uh, if you are a nominal Christian, and so one of the ways that they determine these in the studies is they say, how many times do you attend church in a month? So if you are a, a committed evangelical Christian who is attending church three or more times a month, you are amongst the group of people that has the happiest marriages uh, in the country. But if you are a nominal Christian, that is, you have some familiarity with some of the terms and concepts, but you're not really into it and you only attend church, you know, less than a time a month, you actually have some of the worst marriages. Uh, it, the, 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 the delta there is, is really, really large, which is super interesting. And that, that tells us that we don't need to actually move away from the Bible's teaching. We actually need to move closer. You know, we, we need to embrace this more to what God is talking about, not, not less. It's not a matter of getting rid of the idea of submit, but it's understanding what is really being asked here. You know, what is really the context being talked about here? You know, husbands who are laying down their lives for their wife. You know, wives who are willingly then submitting themselves to their husbands. And again, I mentioned the military connection. Think about the military. Everybody who has a role in the military has to submit themselves. Why? For the greater good. If you don't, it'll never work. If you're an intelligence agent, but you intend, you know, to go and break down the, the doors as an infantryman, like, you're, you're completely out of role. In the same way, we don't want our infantrymen, you know, calling the intelligence shots. You, you need to sort of get in line, and you need to carry out your role for the greater good so that it can survive. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying in this one flesh relationship, husbands need to love their wife as Christ loved the church. You know, that is, he, give themselves sacrifice for their wives. And wives, you need to submit yourselves to your husbands. So again, this isn't all women to all men. This is wives to their own husbands. Uh, submit themselves to their own husbands, you know, for the functioning of the body. Now, here's, here's the good news. The good news is that it creates a portrait to behold. And I want to give you two things on this, and I'll go as quickly as I can. The first is, uh, you know, in the here and now, I've already alluded to this, 
this actually works. You know, we, we live in a time where, you know, we have these modern ideas and Western feminism and all of these different things that have infiltrated our thinking to such a degree that we feel like this is archaic, repressive, like how can we possibly function within this framework and have it bring joy? But it does. Uh, sociologist Bernice Martin of the University of London, and I, and I think I'm right on this, I don't know that she had any particular agenda into doing this study. I, I'm not positive that she was a Christian. In fact, I think that she wasn't, but don't quote me on that. Um, the point is she had a very unsuspecting finding because what she was finding was that there was a women's movement in Latin America. And uh, women seem to be more empowered. Women seem to be uh, standing up more for themselves. But what she found is that theologically conservative Protestantism makes for better marriages. She found that evangelical forms of Christianity benefit women by morally restraining the traditional autonomy of the male and the selfish or irresponsible exercise uh, of male power. Um, in society, she, she puts it this way, these are her words, in societies characterized by a tradition of male dominance, women uh, in Christianity have been able to institute a family discipline, sanctioned and effectively policed by the church community, which puts the collective needs of the household unit above the freedom and pleasures of men, which has called an end to the long-tolerated double standard of sexual morality. So you understand what she's finding. She's saying, you know, Christianity actually speaks to men and they, they, they stop sleeping around. They, they stop playing the field. They start being committed to their wife. And, and there is ways then that wives can respond to this. And it's this whole different thing. She, she argues that biblical Christianity has done far more than Western feminism to improve the lives of poor women around the globe. In her words, gender equality has been rigorously preached by Western development agencies and the mainline church organizations, yet, she says, it is not Western feminism, even in its Christian variant, which has transformed for the better the lives of millions of poor women in developing countries. They have been empowered, rather, by a regressive, fundamentalist Christian movement whose theological awkwardness and lack of intellectual sophistication causes problems and embarrassment to enlightened Western observers. She concludes that if there is a women's movement among the poor of the developing world, conservative Protestantism has a good claim to be the source. Do you, do you see what, what she's saying? She's saying like, this, this is good. You know, when we come to the scriptures, we, we believe that. We say that God is telling us what is good and what is right as our creator, the one who made us and knows how we are to operate. He knows what is good for us. And when he lays out this portrait of a love story, he says, step into it and, and you will know joy. You will know happiness. It's not going to be easy all the time. We know that. We talked about that in our Sunday school time. I mean, marriage is, is really, really difficult. And I know that some of you are struggling in your marriages. But some of it may be like we're not really stepping into what God has invited us to. 
And what we find, you know, just very practically, sociologically, is that it works. <laughs> that, that, that people embrace it and that there is joy to be found in that. The second thing I just want to highlight to you in terms of the portrait. And again, this is for anybody. Whether you are a husband, a wife, whether you are single, uh, not yet married, single again. Uh, some of you have been through very painful divorces. Um, you, you've lost spouses and, and suddenly you found yourself in this really uh, unwanted, uncomfortable place. The bigger picture here we can never forget is our marriage to Jesus. He is the great bridegroom. This is where it's all going. When we get to heaven, there will be neither marrying nor giving in marriage in heaven. Why is that? Because we don't need the picture anymore. We, we have the whole thing. We, we will be in the consummated love story with our Savior. And all those longings that Taylor and all the Swifties have, you know, for that white night. All of that, that, that frustration that we feel as we try to work out a, our marriages, all of that will come to fruition at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will be one with our Savior, that mystic sweet communion. Uh, that the church's one foundation talks about. This is what they discovered, incidentally, in the Reformation. You know, that, that we were in this incredible love story and the church got off. You know, they, they forgot that, that Christ came as the bridegroom to seek his holy bride. And they were trying to, you know, make themselves ready rather than surrender to the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our invitation, friends. Our invitation is to a love story that leaves us in awe. A love story that invites us uh, forward into the wake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for just the, this incredible, incredible story that you give us. And we, we confess right away, you know, as we, we come to this and we think about our own marriages and we think about living this out, we think about, you know, being single or not yet married, we think about all of these different things, we, we confess our inadequacy. Lord, we, we know that there are marriages here this morning that are, are struggling, they're broken, uh, they're in, in desperate shape. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that we might, through your grace and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the friendship of the community, the love of one another, we pray that there might be a time of reorientation in those marriages. We pray that there might be a time uh, of coming together. We pray that you might give us, rather, we pray that you might show us how much we are loved in order that we might have the freedom and the confidence to lay down our life for another, to submit to another. Lord, we need that every single day. Uh, we need the, 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 the motivation. We need the enablement to go forward. And Father, we know we need it in this community. 
And Father, we, we know we need it not only for ourselves, but the world needs it. We need portraits, we need pictures that say there is a bigger story. We don't have to be uh, content with, with mud pies and mud puddles when you've created just this wonderful feast uh, for us to enjoy the, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Lord, we pray that you would lead us into that point, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.